Today's episode of the City of Smack podcast on the City of Smack podcast network is brought to you by The Feed. A quick second to get the word out about The Feed's club discount program. So in addition to working with Sidious on continuing to push out these podcasts, The Feed is working with running clubs and teams all across the country to provide discounts on all of their inventory from nutrition to recovery products. Any running club is eligible. I run with the Brooklyn Track Club here in New York City. They're one of the teams involved. We have more than 200 people, but a squad can just be you and two college buddies who run together on weekends. You guys count and are totally eligible to participate. Club Northwest, San Francisco Roadrunners, Wazelle's Volley Team, these are just some of the notable teams that have signed up for the program. Schools can do it too on the college and the high school level. Members of clubs or schools who sign up for the program will get 15% off all of their orders on the feed, and they will provide each school with a customized landing page and a unique discount code to that school or club. So if your team joins, they will also get priority access to the feed's awesome nutrition coaches who are always there to answer questions about anything that is in their inventory and how you can implement it into your training. So if you're interested, email Riley Masters. His email is riley at thefeed.com to get your team working with the best resource for athletes. So thanks to The Feed for doing an amazing job of sponsoring this podcast. And go ahead, get your team hooked up with The Feed's club discount program. My guest for today's show is Mary Kane. She was previously on the show back in May after discussing a comeback to the sport. But what we didn't know at the time was that she was kind of holding back some details about her full experience with the Nike Oregon Project from 2013 to 2016. In November, a New York Times op-doc was dropped where Mary reveals that she suffered mental and physical abuse under the leadership of Alberto Salazar. While she impressed many people on the track with her talent, she also went on to break five bones, miss her period for three years, and had suicidal thoughts due to disordered eating that she says she developed under Salazar's extreme training methods. This was one of the most impactful stories in the sport for 2019. I went on to report a follow-up story for Sports Illustrated by speaking with several former Oregon Project members. They validated Kane's claims, and they extended the timeline with stories going back to 2008. So I'll include a link to the New York Times story as well as my Sports Illustrated story in the show notes. In the SI piece, Mary calls on a third-party investigation into the Oregon Project. The sportswear giant says that an internal investigation is underway, but many people feel that an outside party needs to examine the situation in order to really get to the bottom of things. Salazar has denied any wrongdoing, and he's appealing the four-year ban from USADA to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, but it's unlikely that the hearing takes place before March 2020. This is definitely not the end of the Oregon Project story. It's also not the end to stories like Kane's. There are many, many stories of coaches being verbally and physically abusive, weight shaming, and much more. Mary's definitely not alone. I heard from a few people after the story was published. I'll put it out there that if anyone else in the running community wants to talk about their experience, my email is chrisjonathanchavez at gmail.com. My DMs are open on Instagram and Twitter. You can find my information in the show notes, and I'm always willing to listen. So we taped this episode on a Friday night in December in front of a live audience at Mile High Run Club in New York City. It's a treadmill studio where Mary teaches classes from time to time. We talk about the aftermath of the Salazar story, the process of how it came to be, her recent return to racing at the Club Cross Country Championships, and her plans for 2020. 
So without further ado, here is Mary Kane. Hey everyone, thanks for coming out. Uh, there's so many other places you could be on a Friday night, so we thank you guys for, for joining us. A bunch of you guys took the class before this. There's a couple sweaty people. Uh, but no, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Thanks for coming. Thanks to Mary for taking the time to, to share her story with us, I guess. And uh, we're gonna kick this off. Being here and teaching these classes, like how did you end up here at Mile High Run Club? And like, what do you get out of teaching everyday runners just you know interval classes and all that kind of stuff? Because for someone who's involved at the highest level of the sport, it's like you could be using all this time for your own training, but you're sort of giving back to the New York City running community in a way. Yeah, I love Mile High. This is like my home away from home. Um, I was introduced to it uh, primarily through my coach, John. He's in the crowd here. Um, so thanks, John. And to my friends like Corinne and Scott and all my new friends here who are also Mile High coaches. Um, and I just always had heard of both John and the other coaches who I'm friends with talk about Mile High. And it, honestly sounded like a lot of fun and for those of you who took the class this evening I hope you did have fun it was meant to be a hard class it was meant to hurt but I don't know I'm the sort of person who I find that fun training um, and I think for me too it makes me reassess my own training so sometimes during a workout I have to think okay if I was mid rep like this what would I say to myself and sometimes it almost reasserts good habits that I myself don't always follow because then mid-rep, I will remember what I've said to you and I will think, don't be a hypocrite. If you told them to use that positive word and you are not using your own positive word, that, that's, not, that's not good vibes right there. Uh, so for me, I feel like it's really helped me kind of rethink my own training in terms of what has to go into creating a coaching plan, the thought process, the why behind everything, and also the how. So it's truly reinvigorated my own training to look at it from a different perspective. So at the same time, you're balancing your own professional running, uh, and we'll kind of like work our way backwards a little bit. Most recently, you ran at the USATF Club Cross Country Championships, finished 33rd, just about like a minute away from the winner. Uh, what was it like finally getting back into racing? Because that was your first race against like an all women's like competitive, like US national field in years, right? Yeah, it'd been three years since I really raced against women. Um, between that time, the only other race I had done was this past summer, I did an NYRR four miler. So honestly, after the race, I was really bummed out. That was not a good showing for me. Um, but it was also a really important race because it made me realize that I haven't been training like I am going to race. And by that, I mean, I think I've just been kind of going through the motions. Like I try to hit the times, I go to the runs. I've almost been very casual about it. And I'm not saying that I need to all of a sudden become insane and freak out about my training but it's more I need to treat myself more like a pro and that includes the mental side of things. So during today's class, I was talking to people about using a word. So something that inspires you, a positive thing. And so what I've started doing ever since this race where I felt I really kind of let 
myself go mentally and just got too nervous midway through the race and just probably got went out a little too hard and then died more than I should have because I kind of honestly gave up on the back end. I started using three words for every run. I think of a person who inspires me. I think of a form cue that can snap me out of my own head. And I also think of a positive word that when it starts to get hard, I'll just think of that so it can kind of snap me out. And so I've only been doing this for a week now, but it's been actually really, really fun. During today's workout, I had three great words. It really got me through the reps. And I feel like it's better preparing me for future racing. So like during today's workout, when it got kind of tough, like what was the word that you were thinking of? I was actually thinking easy. So what I've been doing is I've been going down the alphabet. So I started with A, and each day I'm just going down, and I'm picking a new word. And the reason I was thinking easy is today I had mile repeats, and it was really cold out, and I was alone. And so part of the point of this session was to be able to be relaxed, especially during the first three miles, and just hit the paces and not almost freak out too early on or have too high of expectations or assume I have to feel one way versus another. So my word was easy. So at any point, if I felt myself starting to maybe get nervous about the pace or how I was feeling, I would just think that. My word today was lean, like lean into it, relax, make sure your form is good. And it would just snap me out of those negative thoughts. And every single lap, I pretty much hit the same exact pace. And I felt it actually really helped. I guess like there's another component to especially someone of your caliber and like kind of returning to this very public stage with competition. It's just the fact that thinking about the athlete that you used to be in high school and when you first started your professional career compared to where you are now just a couple years later, how difficult is it and or, or do you even try to like subside those thoughts of like you know, these times right now and workouts don't look like what they used to. And so like, how are you dealing with that? Definitely. I think one thing that's really interesting about my training history is even though I've been um, both a professional in, in the sport of track and field for a very long time, no two years look really whatsoever similar. And it's because of just insane, you know, kind of random training when I was younger and then injuries and all of a sudden, I don't really have a ton to look back on to really know what's the right way to do things. And so for me, first off, it's about really trusting the people who I work with. And I will be honest, there have been times where I have so doubted myself, and therefore I projected that onto everybody. So I would try to overtrain, and that would probably add to some of my injury cycles. And it was just a bad, both emotional, mental, and physical place to be in. And so, I would be totally lying right now if I didn't say I don't still get nervous. I think that was part of the problem with my race this weekend, and I think it was something that I had to come to terms with, that it's early on in the year, and my goal is in June. And so it's going to be a long process. It's about continuing to build up, and it's about being patient. And I'm somebody who it's really hard for me to be patient. And I'm sure a lot of you who are runners or athletes or type A personalities can empathize with that. Um, but it's just taking a lot of practice, and I think these three years, being almost so far removed from racing, sometimes can help me just be so happy to be back and be back in training that I almost can't even really worry about what I used to do, because honestly, my goals are to run a lot faster and do a lot better than I even did in the past, and so if you're always living in the past, you can never make it to the future. 
I won't gloss over it. You threw out June there in terms of just like my goals are in June. So what exactly does that mean? And it's like, are there shorter term goals along the way that you kind of want to accomplish until you get to that point? Yeah. So I'm not afraid to say I want to go to the Olympics. Like I'm sure everybody in the room wants to like, what the heck? Um, and the Olympic trials are in June. And so between now and then it's about getting fit, getting faster and relearning how to race and racing well. And truthfully, I don't have a timeline because I think it would be unrealistic after such a long block away to really know exactly when I'm gonna be firing on all cylinders. But I have six months to get there, that's a long time. And so my goal is to race this indoor, hopefully race well, hopefully get some experience under me. But at the same time, I'm trying to keep indoor as also really a positive mental um, practice in that I haven't raced for a really long time and really the main goal of indoor is just relearning how to race and whatever that means time-wise or place-wise it's just going to be what it's going to be and then come the outdoor season hopefully I'm really rolling. What were those moments like I guess this past weekend before the race it's like because you're still I guess in this process of kind of maybe getting the training wheels off again um, in terms of just the moment before the gun goes off and like when you're getting in those last couple strides, like what were you thinking and what were you feeling? I was way too zen. Like I was chill. I'm like, oh, it's just like a workout. And I think that was my problem was that I so didn't prepare myself. And there's a certain point where nerves in and of themselves are not bad. Nerves just mean you're excited. That means you have expectations. That means you are trying to run hard. And I think I wasn't even nervous because I had so forgotten what to expect in a race. So when it got hard, I was like, well, usually in a workout at this point, I would just be done. <laughs> I don't have to run through this because I haven't raced in a while and that's the whole point of racing. Um, and I think that was part of the thing for me is you know, reflecting back on what kind of went on during the race is I, I have to be nervous again. I have to want it again. I'm back, I'm racing this indoor, I'm back, I'm racing this outdoor, and I kind of have to relearn how to do it. Um, at the same time, like being that chill and relaxed before a race, like it, it seems like a little bit of the opposite of what maybe you were experiencing in the past like two months. So kind of to tie in current events, I mean, how much have, you know, the publication of the New York Times story, the SI story that we worked on, like from there, and just like the heightened media attention after the fact, like how much was that on your shoulders and like for how long? Yeah, um, I feel last week I also crashed a little bit where I finally um, was just needed a little bit of a break and I realized that um, I haven't been necessarily taking care of myself during this whole process and that's very hypocritical when one of your messages is really about mental health and you're really not shutting down unless you're sleeping. And I think it's just for me, I'm the sort of personality who I feel really, really bad that if you've sent me a Twitter message, if you've sent me an Instagram message, I have probably never replied to you. And it's truthfully just because I have not been able to keep up. And that does not mean I don't appreciate, beyond appreciate people sending me messages, sharing their stories, sending their support. I do see that and I hear that and I thank you, but it's truthfully just been a little difficult for me um, to really learn how to balance my training, my own 
you know, outside of training life and then continuing to pursue advocacy work and keep up with media stuff and kind of everything that comes with that. Um, and I think one thing is that, you know, if you're a runner and you love running, you get this. If you have a passion for something, it's really easy to overdo it. And I have such a passion for what I'm doing with this advocacy work that it's easy for me to just not stop, to just constantly be on email, constantly taking calls, constantly doing stuff. But especially as the holidays are coming up and I'm realizing, you know, 2020 is around the corner, it's just super important for me to kind of learn how to kind of balance everything and, you know, realize that life's a marathon and not a sprint. Uh, so what did you expect at the very beginning before, like, I guess, the process of going forward with the New York Times story because, you know, it has like blown up into this much bigger thing. It was very interesting to watch from from like my perspective as someone who like follows the sport very closely is the New York Times did all this tremendous work with, you know, the maternity policies that Nike has with their contracts. And that was just like a story that was, you know, it, it, it was a story for about like a week and a half or so. And, you know, change was made. But then it was really interesting to watch when your story came out just how much more attention it got and it was what what do you think it was that really led to just the difference in sort of like the attention it got um well to start off i think it's worth saying that i did not expect that um if you were you know one of the few people who knew that i was doing this beforehand i thought that it would just stay within the running community and that 50 percent of it would be super negative because honestly, my whole career, that's what I'm just used to. So I thought it would be like jerks on Let's Run being like, she is fat. And then the other 50% of people would, no, honestly, like I, the first time I watched the New York Times video, I'm just gonna be totally honest. I texted my mom right away and I said, I look fat. That was literally the first thing that I thought. And, um, that's, that was the mindset I was in. So I didn't do this thinking like, oh, I'm gonna get all these people watching my video and it's gonna be really positive. I did this to free myself. I did this because I knew it would be a cathartic experience for me. And my attitude was the other 50% of people who maybe would take something from this. If I could literally just help one other person, then I, then I did a good thing. And I really did not expect the whole you know, community of people who stepped up, who are both in running and outside of running to do that. And I, first off, just wanna say I really thank them. Um, because it's everybody who has stood up since and said this is not okay, we need to change this system, is why I'm sitting here, it's why we can continue this conversation, it's why I have been so busy and so overwhelmed, and it's because people really do want to need change. And I think then to really answer your question of why did it get so big? It's because my story is not something you haven't experienced. Whether it's you yourself, it's a friend of yours, it's a family member, everybody has been touched by a story like this. Of course, I was a good voice for it because mine was rather egregious. It was to me at a very young age. But the truth is, body image issues, abuse, that happens to middle schoolers. That happens to high schoolers. That happens to college kids. That happens to adults. And so even if you're not a runner, you understand that this is a systemic issue that transcends sport. And I think that's why it really resonated and became what it did. 
Um, but I, I really only say that in retrospect because living in the moment, I, I didn't expect it. What was the actual process like in terms of just working with Lindsey Krauss and at the same time you taking the time to reflect on pretty much the, this very pivotal chapter of your your life where it was 2014 to 2000 or 2013 mm -hmm. to 2016 um, when you were at kind of like the height of your career but there was so much behind the scenes that no one really knew about. Yeah, I think one thing that I still find weird, and this is gonna sound very silly, is that I've always known all of this. So in certain ways when it came out and everybody was so shocked, it was almost weird to me because I was like, didn't everybody already know? Like, I don't know. Um, but for me, what had happened um, was I, after, just honestly, Alberto Salazar's ban, um, I had read the whole USADA report on it, and it was like getting punched in the face. It was like somebody was slapping me out of a dream that I was in, um, and it made me really have to step back and look at my own experience in a whole new light. Um, I'm somebody who is very much a self-blamer. Um, I've always had trouble almost saying that this whole experience wasn't my fault. And that was the first time that I really kind of saw proof that this was something bigger than just me. Um, and really what had happened was I think my family and some of my friends were getting so sick of me, like constantly trying to use them as therapists <laughs> and talk it through, that they said, why don't, why don't you write this out? Like that might be a really cathartic experience. And so I did. And I thought what I wrote was pretty good. <laughs> And after talking with my family and talking with loved ones, I decided that I was gonna reach out to Lindsey Krauts um, and just be like, hey, you know, maybe you'll be interested in reading this. And as soon as she read it, she emailed me and she's like, can you come to the New York Times building right now? Because I wanna talk to you. And I did and she was like, I have followed sport, I followed you, I had no idea this was a thing this is a story that needs to be told. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, I didn't really expect that, but having somebody like Lindsay, who has since become a really good friend and a really great support system, and somebody who's beyond just a journalist, um, was really great to really hold my hand through this journey, and it, it was in the works for maybe about a month um, and it's funny looking back at that timeline because every day I was like, are we just gonna drop it? <laughs> um, like, when's it coming out? And, you know, looking back, it really wasn't that long of a process, but um, it, was, it was really great to be supported by Lindsay and the whole New York Times during that. And it's really interesting because like in that entire process, I mean, it finally comes out and it, it's starting to get picked up everywhere. One of the first things that stood out to me was just like, well, that's interesting that this really, really negative experience you had is now just being just amplified because just a couple months back, you and I sat down for like the first podcast we did together. And there was, I think, like a subtle like hint that you were like, I'm still, you know, going forward with my running career and who knows, you know, where I could end up. And, you know, that never closed the door on possibly, you know, signing another pro contract and going back to where you were. Um, and so to a lot of people, that was also kind of a shock because they had listened to that episode and been like, well, that's, how did she say that just a couple months back? So that's something that I think Nike, I think, jumped on when 
they released their statement afterwards. So mm-hmm. when what you you mentioned the USADA report being like the big wake up call, but what was kind of your reaction to kind of like people sort of like pulling up those receipts and being like, well, actually, like, here's how she felt. And it was just kind of like you weren't you were still in that dream state, you said, up until maybe what, two weeks before? Yeah, so the um, ban happened in October, and I think I released my piece in November. And I, you know, this is the sort of situation where, again, six months ago, wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to do this because I was still completely in denial. Um, again, I watched that New York Times video, and literally my first thought was, I look fat. Like, this is not stuff that you just get over in two minutes. This is not stuff that always takes a year. I'm not fully out of all of this. I think a lot of this is going to take a lifetime to really continue to process. And I think that's so important to say and for people to recognize because the reason a lot of people never come forward is because they don't feel they've hit the timeline for what's socially appropriate. So legally, socially, culturally, there's all these vague settings for like, well, you didn't come and tell me within a month, you must be lying. You must not mean it. You must be doing it for X, Y, and Z. We saw this during the Me Too movement. We saw women who came forward 20 years later and people were shaming them, blaming them, being very cruel to people's personal traumas, personal stories. And so the truth is, and I've said this before, yes, I was in denial until I read that piece because I thought I was alone. I had only ever heard really my parents and very close friends tell me, no, you you were not at fault. This was a bigger issue. But the greater running world was telling me otherwise because nobody ever stepped in, nobody ever came to me and nobody ever said they were sorry. And so for me, that was the running world saying that this is the right way, you are doing it the wrong way. And the wrong way was trying to be healthy, trying to stand up for myself, trying not to get dragged back into this. Um, And so I was incredibly disappointed when that was the response because it's the response so many people have heard. Being brave, is not separate from being vulnerable. In order to be brave, you have to be vulnerable. Because you have to do something that's hard, you have something to do, do something that's tough. And yes, I am totally stealing this from Brene Brown. Before <laughs> my piece dropped, um, Lauren Fleshman, who really graciously um, spoke to me before my piece came out, told me to watch her Netflix special. And ever since then, I always think about it. Because whenever somebody sends a negative comment, whenever anybody does anything, I will always remember I was brave. And unless you two can stand up, be vulnerable, and say something that's really scary and really tough, I don't care about your opinion. I only care about the other people who are stepping up, who are doing something hard. And sometimes that's the people who just have to say, I'm sorry, I messed up, how can I make it better? And some people have done that, and not, not everybody has. 
A quick break now to give you the lowdown on Squirrel's Nut Butter. They are the best when it comes to anti-chafing salves and products. Why? Because they use all natural ingredients in everything that they make. If it's not natural, it's not good enough for your skin. The products are made to prevent skin damage as well as restore and repair damaged skin. It's a company that really cares about its consumers. They oversee every step of the production. They're based in Flagstaff, Arizona and have people mixing and pouring every ingredient before labeling containers and shipping out every order. They also give back to the sport by sponsoring cycling, running, and triathlon athletes and events around the world. They also support this podcast. My listeners can all try Squirrel's Nut Butter products right now and get 20% off every single one of their products by using promo code SIDIUS20 at checkout by visiting squirrelsnutbutter.com. And right now, they're also offering free shipping on all U.S. orders. So act fast and don't miss out. That's squirrelsnutbutter.com and use promo code SIDIUS20. The hardest part to really get out, whether it was in the video or when you were just writing it for the first time, because I think the part that really struck, I think, and was like a huge turning point in that storytelling and just of 2013 to 2016 was the night at Oxy. But for you, I guess, like, what is still like, what still might be the hardest part to think about? Yeah, um, definitely the reason I told the story at the Occidental Classic meet is I think, um, <laughs> in a terrible way, it's a short way to sum up my experience. And um, there's a lot of stories, there's a lot of things that happened before then, there are things that happened afterwards, but I feel, for me, that was a turning point where it was the moment where I became really scared of myself and what I could do to myself. Um, and that's really hard to say without getting emotional, um, but that probably was the hardest story to share. Um, but honestly, that I felt so bad for the New York Times video crew when we filmed that day because, you know, I'm maybe gonna say something a little cocky. I think I'm pretty good in front of a mic, but I am terrible if it's just me and a camera and I'm supposed to say specific things. So coming into the video, we had like written like bullet points of things that we wanted to make sure we hit just to sum up the story. And I could not do that. And I think it was so hard for me to almost read something that I had written um, because it made it really real. And I think I'm somebody who's a little bit better spoken when I'm kind of ad-libbing it and just like, you guys are now my friends. Like I'm telling you personal <laughs> things, like we can just chat. Um, I feel more comfortable this way, but I think the hardest thing was saying on camera and admitting to the world that I had had suicidal thoughts, that I had cut myself. Um, because as I said, in so many ways, even before the piece came out, I was still really ashamed of that, and I still, I mean, I still am. I think it's hard not to be, um, but in coming out, it's been a very cathartic experience. Yeah, I mean, it's really easy to kick yourself in retrospect just because, like, you realize, like, you were a teenager and there were so many other voices, like, influencing your life at that point, but I guess, like, what are some of the things you've learned now looking back at, the, the, at that time period that where you're like, well, that wasn't right, and, like, why do you think there was such like a big emphasis on, especially the, the weight issue, where it was this emphasis that the smaller you got, the faster you were going to get? Because long term, that's not the way things should be. 
No, and I think just having a lot of other, both young women and young men, um, reach out to me and share their own stories, particularly around weight, I think in a generalized sense, it's super sloppy coaching. So culturally, we think skinny is better, and we put models up on our magazines who, a lot of whom get to those weights in unhealthy manners, and that's who we idolize. And at the end of the day, running is a sport where you want to be strong and lean and fit. But, you know, not every track coach is also a strength coach. Not every track coach is also a nutritionist. And so they look at the elite runners and they're like, hey, they're pretty skinny, you should be skinny. And for a lot of kids, I feel the eating disorder path that I went down um, doesn't always start from like egregiously terrible evil coaches. Sometimes it's truly just poor communication. It's flippant talk overweight. It's like, hey, you know, you look a little chubbier than last year. Stuff like that that can really, really hurt, particularly young women, because we anyway live in a society where our weight is so scrutinized, our weight is so almost looked down upon. Um, you can never be perfect with it. So when coaches just are, you know, flippant with stuff, I think it can really hurt. And I think as you go up higher and higher into the elite collegiate and the elite professional realms, coaches, you know, can have egos. And weight is something that only you can control. Your coach can't like force you to eat something or make all of your meals and track all of your calories. That's hypothetically on you. And I think as a result, when kids aren't always performing up to par, it's an easy way to not be to blame. It's your fault, it's your weight. You were too fat, that's why you were slow. Versus, oh, you know, your training was a little off, you had a heavier workload, heavier class load, whatever it is. Um, you know, you might be a little under the weather. You know, looking at an athlete as a whole person, it's kind of an easier way to put it on them. So red S, relative energy deficiency in sports, is something I think that you have said like on social media that it's something you really are going to be advocating for and just the awareness. What are some of these like early signs <clears throat> that someone should be like looking out for um, it, like if that's something that's affecting them? And like I guess like how would you kind of like give a spark notes version of what it is? Yeah, so relative energy deficiency in sports is something that um, is kind of a new coinage for what used to be called female athlete triad, and that's still, people are still doing research into that, but this is supposed to be like a more all-encompassing. So it includes men, um, and it's really about how overtraining, under-eating, um, will cause you to have lower hormones, and for women in particular, this can lead to bone density issues and a result, stress fractures. Um, and so the reason the female athlete triad was called a triad is because you're looking at bone health, um, nutritional intake, as well as just training. Um, but the reason that I truthfully have come out and spoken more publicly about reds is I think it's important to include boys in this because men also are pressured into 
um, under eating and trying to maintain specific weights. And although their breaking point, you know, for lack of a better word, is almost a lower level so they can go longer um, without maintaining certain fat storages, they can still start to break. There are plenty of men who have had stress fractures because of under eating as well. Um, but for women, we have um, kind of a, like a quicker opportunity to get into that zone. And for some people, it's not truly that they are, you know, having an eating disorder issues or egregiously going over in training. Sometimes it's just that you are too stressed and that your energy totals in a whole are not enough for you to maintain just a healthy lifestyle. And one of the biggest warning signs, of course, and which was the case for me, is amenorrhea, which is um, missing your periods for an extended amount of time. Usually that's more than three months. Um, and that's something that I think within the sport world, people are becoming more comfortable talking about, um, but we're not fully there yet. We really need to be you know, open about this. This should be something that young girls know that they can go to their doctor for, they can talk to their parents about. You know, I understand that your best intention coach, you still might not want to chat with them about your period, I get that. Um, but you have to go to somebody if you are having problems because this is your long-term health at stake. Um, it's interesting you mentioned just like, you know, some of these issues also affect men. And so like when, it was, when I was reporting the Sports Illustrated follow-up on the New York Times piece, um, Adam Goucher was one of the people who I spoke with. And he said that, you know, he also got a couple comments here and there from Alberto regarding like his weight. Um, but in addition to like Nike and Alberto putting out their statements after your story, we saw a bunch of other former Nike Oregon Project athletes start to come forward with their own accounts. Was there any one of those stories that really struck a chord with you um, about just like, wow, it's like, I can't believe like this went back, you know, more about a decade before you even got to the team. I think what's really sad is that I had pretty much heard all of those stories. And I heard all of them when I was on the team. Um, they were what not to become stories. They were not, oh, you know, we maybe shouldn't have talked about her butt like that. It was more like, you don't want to be her because she had a big butt. And so, again, I think sometimes being the person who kind of comes out with the story, it's a little bit weird because as other people were sharing their stories, rather than being shocked and horrified, I was like, oh, I forgot that. Oh, God, I should have known that was a warning sign versus being almost kind of horrified like I should have been. And I think that just shows how ingrained this stuff gets into you. That rather than standing up and being like, that's so inappropriate, why are you talking about somebody that way? All you're thinking is, oh, thank God they're not talking about me. And um, I think the only story that I hadn't heard was Amy's about the contract, um, about not being like friends with teammates. Um, but every other story, unfortunately, I'd, I'd already heard. Uh, in terms of just kind of like news stories, I'm sure like your inbox, like you said, has been just like flooded with firsthand accounts. Like what, do you, what is it that you want to do with the momentum of this movement when it comes to uh, understanding you don't have the time to respond to every single person, but 
is there like what is it exactly that you want to set in motion um my biggest mission right now is to create an educational standard i think we can all say that awareness is incredibly important but education is always the second step because right now we're in the process of a lot of people kind of reaching out and saying wow okay, I wanna make sure I'm saying the right thing, but I'm not, I'm not qualified in nutrition, I'm not qualified in women's health, um, you know, abuse signals, I just, I don't know really what to expect. So right now we're kind of in the long-term process of trying to ultimately partner with organizations that will create um, platforms almost similar to what Safe Sport, if not partnering with Safe Sport, has created over sexual abuse. Um, and expanding that into women's health, into mental, emotional, psychological abuse, um, as well as just kind of a host of different issues that can impact young athletes. And I think this is something that is so needed because even people who are perfectly intentioned can just do the wrong thing or might just not know where to go. And right now, I came out in the New York Times with my story because I genuinely had no idea where else to go. Do you turn to Safe Sport? Do you turn to USATF? I can't find anything on the website. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And so for me, this was kind of a last effort to kind of free this of myself and feel like I took action in some way and was able to therefore move on. And in retrospect, it's scary that there was really nowhere for me to turn. Yeah, it's kind of, let's go through that chain of events because that's one of the things that people might have been saying is like, if this thing was going on for so long, like, why didn't she say anything, any, anything sooner? And like, that's a really tough criticism to, to make of someone. So let's go through the process. It's like, you couldn't tell your athletes, because, uh, your, your teammates, because they were all there. They saw it anyway, and they weren't doing anything. Couldn't tell your coaches because... They were doing it. <laughs> couldn't tell uh, Nike HR. I'm not an employee. I'm an independent contractor. Couldn't tell uh, Nike Sports Marketing. Like, I mean, Alberto's cubicle was right across from them. I mean, you know, come on. So you <laughs> called for this third-party investigation into Nike within the Sports Illustrated story, <laughs> and it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Like, there's an investigation underway that they say, you know, his for Alberto's former assistants, the former, I mean, the sports psychologist has said, like, hey, I'm in for a third party investigation. In my reporting, Alberto and Nike were the only ones who really didn't comment on, like, bringing in a third party into it. Um, but is, and at the same time, you see this protest that happened on Nike's campus just, like, a week or so ago. Um, what is it that you want to see from them? Um, I, my biggest thing is that Nike is giant. They are everywhere. I look around the room and most people are wearing Nike because of course, they make a lot of products. They are, I mean, the biggest person in track and field. And so what I want from Nike is change. I think what I'm asking for is pretty reasonable change. It's to treat people with respect, listen to them if they're trying to talk, and find ways to actually support that. And so for track and field, that means put people in place who care about athletes, who will listen to athletes, who will protect athletes. That includes the marketing team, that includes coaches. I mean, it's not rocket science. 
maybe put some women in there so that there's more sympathy, there's maybe more understanding over women's health, and try to continue to change the culture. So when your employees are gonna step up and be incredibly brave and, and really you know, fight for something that they believe in, don't threaten firing them, don't discourage their walk. Walk the walk, don't just talk the talk. I don't like brands that come up and promote athletes as being game changers, as being people who fight the system, as being strong voices, and then try to shut voices down. That is bad marketing, that's bad business, and I don't support that. In the final stages of like the reporting of the, st the follow-up story, Alberto sent over like a 500-word statement to me, and in it he did apologize, saying like if you know, along the way I had used some sort of language, like, I'm sorry. Like, he, he did have an apology in there to some extent. Pete Julian, when I spoke to him, the assistant coach, he showed some remorse and also, you know, real, said that he didn't realize you might have been hurting as much at the time. When you read their statements and kind of hear what they had to say, I mean, like, what is, what does it do for you now? I mean, are, is, is anyone forgiven yet? Or, you know, where are you in that process? Um, I think my whole thing is that honestly, I don't like I don't hate anybody. I genuinely feel that I made my own mistakes. And yes, I was young, but I think it's adults take accountability for their actions, and I'm an adult. And I personally feel I could have left sooner. I could have talked sooner. I could have stand up for myself more. So, in a lot of ways, I'm not angry with people. But I also can't accept apologies that aren't real. Um, if you say sorry, but, it's out, it's over. If you have your lawyers write your apology, out, over. Um, if you're just saying it because you want the other person on the line to hear it rather than the person that you hurt, it just doesn't, it's just words. Um, and I'm always open to talk to people. I've had teammates who have stepped up and have genuinely said, I'm sorry I didn't stand up for you. By far the bravest thing anybody's done. Because they're not saying they did the right thing. They're not, you know, they're getting no glory out of doing that. But they are standing up and beside somebody that they weren't able to earlier. And to me, that means the world. So you don't have to be perfect. I accept that we're all human and people make mistakes, but in order to have an apology accepted, it has to be sincere. So it wouldn't be easy, but if you had the opportunity to sit across Alberto Salazar, say tomorrow, what are some of the things you would want to ask or, or, or say to him at that point? Honestly, I have no idea. And I think it's just because I know deep down it's never gonna happen. And I think that's sad to say because, you know, I've said throughout this process that, you know, sometimes just owning it and saying I'm sorry can do a lot. Um, but you have to be sorry also to say sorry. And I think in a lot of statements it was made very clear that, you know, he didn't pressure me to have an ideal weight, but she had a lot of trouble maintaining her ideal weight. Come on, what does that mean? Um, and I think for me, that's really hard to say, 
um, because I genuinely want the best for everybody. I want to grow through this too, and I hope other people find peace with this who are involved in the story. I, I hope companies grow, I hope individuals grow, I hope teams grow, um, but you have to want to and you have to be able to be vulnerable to get there. Um, on a much more lighter note, and just one final thing before we open it up to a couple questions. One person you did actually have a chance to talk to recently is Megan Rapino at the Sports Illustrated Sportsperson Awards. Uh, what is it that you two talked about? I mean, like, what was that face-to-face -face interaction like? Because she was someone who, you know, is one, a very prominent figure for Nike. Two's like had one of the best years an athlete can have um, on just like a global stage. And she, you know, went on TV, went on social media and backed you up when this story first came out. So what was that like for you to, to meet someone like her? Honestly, incredible. Uh, she was one of the first people to actually reach out to me after my story dropped. Um, just saying, hey, I, I stand with you. Whatever I can do to help, let me know. What you're fighting for is important. Um, and as I said earlier, it's people who are also out there fighting the good fight, who are being vulnerable, who are standing up for what they believe in. Those are the people whose opinions I care about. So hearing that from her was incredible. And I mean, she's also super cool and awesome. So yeah. Um, and at the Sports Illustrated Person of the Year uh, event that I went to, she was so nice, so down to earth, easy to talk to. We talked about a lot of things, including some of the stuff that I'm currently pursuing and my goals. Um, and also just could have like a lighthearted conversation as well. Um, but even at that event, she gave an incredible speech. I was the person, like if you listen to any of her videos and you hear like an insane girl wooing in the background, <laughs> Table 31, y'all. That was me. I was in the back. I was at the kids' table screaming. Um, and she is somebody who I really look up to. And um, in the recent Sports Illustrated issue, um, she was also you know, in the magazine, and I had a piece in there. And I do mention her. I mention all of the women who stood up in the maternity, dream maternity um, stories, as well as, of course, all the USA gymnasts. Anybody who's stepped up, said something scary, said something hard to both strengthen and change women's sports are people who I will always have the pleasure um, of getting to know. And it's been really, really incredible meeting everybody along this journey. And I'm sure to a lot of people in the room, you're one of those people. So we're going to open up the floor to questions right now. If anyone has anything for Mary, it could be fun, whatever. Um, yeah, just hit us with, just raise your hand and, yeah, right, right there. Yeah, so I think a big um, change, as I mentioned earlier with, with the mental side, has literally been happening in the last week um, in terms of trying to pick different words to think about, different form cues. That's been actually awesome. Um, and first off, I live and train in New York City. I mean, I'm sure pretty much everybody in the room does as well. Um, and so I'm out there in the same place as you guys are. I'm at Central Park. I'm running around the reservoir. Um, give me a shout if you see me running by. Sorry if I don't say hi, but <laughs> I always appreciate the cheers. 
Um, I'm down at the East uh, River. I run along there all the time. If you see a weirdo who's looping the turf fields, that's me. Um, love the track there and stuff. So I'm kind of on, you know, a really great training stint right now. I'm up at like kind of full mileage for me doing kind of some base work and excited to drop it down for the track season. And nutritionally right now, I'm kind of in this phase where honestly, I'm trying not to really think about it that much because for me, that's healthier. Um, I try to get something in within 20 minutes of running that, you know, maybe a yogurt or a power bar or something. Um, I try to eat a pretty carby breakfast before a workout so I don't get an upset stomach. I really don't handle dairy great, so I try to avoid cheese. Doesn't work out great. Um, and so, like, super basic stuff like that, but I'm trying not to count calories. I try to just eat healthy. Um, and even that word I kind of hate because I feel like, what the heck does that even mean? Sometimes you just, sometimes it's healthier to eat a pizza. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> Any other questions we've got? Yeah. What's the event you're most excited about for June? Uh, the Olympic trials. That's what I'm trying to get into. Um, hopefully the 1500, but like, you know, let's see where these legs take me. <laughs> Do you got any others here? If not, I'll hit you with some rapid fire ones. Ooh. All right. Favorite place to run in New York City? If you, I mean, you just mentioned a couple, but what's the, the favorite? Um, I honestly love looping the turf field. <laughs> on the East River because it has like a gorgeous view of the water, you see the bridge, and it's very comfortable and comforting just looping a field. Uh, Sorry. Favorite place to get a slice in New York City since you did say pizza could be the move at times. Okay, well I usually don't get like slice in the city, but our, the pizza place that's like was across the street from us closed and we really liked it and I'm really sad by Tremonti. Well actually maybe they're moving but shout out to them. <laughs> uh, favorite movie that takes place in New York City? Oh, this is actually a random one, but um, 10,000 Saints. Never heard of it. Um, had Asa Butterfield. He's hot. And um, Haley Steinfeld. <laughs> Sorry, Jake. Um, and it's in the East Village um, during the not so nice East Village years, but I don't know, it was, just, it was just one of those movies where I was like, that's New York, but like not during the time that I lived there, but that's still cool. So uh, that really did not make sense. I'm sorry <laughs> for that. Uh, favorite New York sports team, do you have one? Uh, I mean like track and field, and NYRR, <laughs> like does that count? I just, I'm a huge Milrose Games <laughs> fan. Oh, uh, like, duh. <laughs> um, I think that's kind of it for me. Do we have any final questions? Last chance. No? All right. Well, Mary, you teach Mile High Run Club classes pretty often. Mm -hmm. Your schedule could be found online, or like, how can people yeah. take another one if they survived today's? <laughs> no, sorry. That was a pretty tough one. Um, yeah, just online, Mile High Run Club. And uh, sometimes I post about it on Instagram. I know my Instagram game's not super good, but like, I'm kind of old and curmudgeonly, and I only got my phone like senior year of high school, and I'm still trying to like learn all the buttons and stuff. So, awesome. <laughs> and also, who the heck has people 
following them around, taking pictures of them running. Like, let's talk about this for a minute. Like, holy crumbles, the people who have like hot Insta game, like, and post something every day. Like, my boyfriend works, my dog can't use a phone. Like, who else, who else is gonna take a picture of me? Like, this is really stressful and like, you know, hit me up if you like know how to use a camera, thanks. <laughs> awesome. Well. Guys, thanks. Thank you, Mary, for taking the time. Um, yeah, she'll be outside, I'm sure. Like, just yeah. uh, if you guys have anything you want to say to her or anything like that. But yeah, thanks. Thanks to everyone for coming out. Yeah, thank you so much.